And it is the special genius of the Democratic Party that it welcomes change, not as an enemy, but as an ally. My nomination is all the more precious in that is the gift of the most open political process in all of our political history. Hubert Horatio For all those whose cares have been our concern, the work goes on, the cause endures, the hope still lives, and the dream shall never die. The era of big government is over. There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. Thanks to you, we've reached a milestone. The first time, the first time in our nation's history that a woman will be a major party's nominee. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of American History 2. And this is part two of our two podcasts that, with the upcoming uh, Democratic Party convention in mind and the Republican convention just having passed, will trace the evolution of those parties over the past 50 or so years. And this episode, obviously, we'll be looking at the Democrats. And as always, I'm joined by Mark McClay. Hello. Hello, Malcolm. It just feels like far too long since we've recorded the podcast. Um, At least an hour and 15 minutes Yes, just to give you an idea of when we're recording this Bernie Sanders has just endorsed Hillary Clinton So there's the breaking news from two weeks ago And once again we're joined by Patrick Angelic Thank you very much Mark, Mark I'm very pleased to be here again What a week it's been uh, it's pretty eventful. Can you believe Donald Trump said that? Yes. Um, <laughs> who who knew that was about to happen at who the Republican knew? convention? Who knew? That Ronald Reagan <laughs> coming back from the dead. Never saw that so one coming. Richard uh, Nixon's robot body. I mean, really and those was. weren't even the two most amazing things to happen at that convention. Uh, science fiction aside, uh, before we get into discussing kind of the Democratic Party over the past fifty years, as we did with the Republican Party in the last pro- podcast. Wondering if there's a particular democratic convention that stands out for either of you as particularly worthy of comment, particularly noteworthy to begin this podcast with. Yeah. Um, well, one that stands out for me, and is a, a little before the period we'll be discussing in detail today, is the convention of 1948. Now, that, that was the last time the democratic convention was held in Philadelphia, which is where it's going to be this year. It was also the last convention to be held without air conditioning, so I can imagine it was pretty rough. Um, this is a convention, of course, that nominated uh, Harry S. Truman. Truman would go on to win a notorious upset that year against uh, the Republican Thomas Dewey. Um, but I think what's particularly noteworthy about this convention is, is it was the effort by a group of uh, liberal Democrats led by uh, Minneapolis Mayor Hubert Humphrey and, and a group called Americans for Democratic Action, uh, ADA, uh, to insert a, a plank into the party's platform uh, calling for full civil rights for African Americans, specifically committing the party to anti-lynching, anti-employment uh, discrimination and anti-poll tax laws. Um, Humphrey gives this really rousing speech um, to the delegates telling them that time had come for the Democratic Party to get out of the shadow of states' rights and walk forthrightly into the bright sunshine of human rights. Planks adopted, and it prompts a walkout by uh, Southern delegates who established their own party, the States' Rights Party or, or Dixiecrat Party, and, and run uh, Governor Strom Thurmond 
uh, of South Carolina for president. I think this is a really crucial convention because it's an important first step in remaking the Democratic Party, which is sort of predominantly a Southern party until the New Deal, into the party of civil rights and also the start of the, the, the loss of the South to the Republicans. Yeah, I think uh, 48 is a great show, but I'm going to go back even further all the way to 1924, um, where the convention was held in New York. And the one of the, the main interests, I think, about 1924 is it took the Democrats 103 ballots. Um, you know, 103 times they took the votes of the members to actually, the delegates to actually agree upon a nominee. And for 99 of those ballots, it was between Al Smith, who was a salt of the earth, Catholic from New York, and William McAdoo, um, a snooty Protestant from the West with KKK sympathies. And neither of them even emerged as a blooming nominee. Um, secondly, during uh, the convention, the Democrats, the main thing they're deadlocked on is over whether to pass a motion in the platform condemning the Ku Klux Klan. And during the convention, 20,000 Klan members even held a picnic across the water in New Jersey. How lovely that must have been. In what became known as Klan Bake. Um, and in the end, the pro-Klan forces, this is a lovely happy ending, won. And the Democrats failed to repudiate the KKK. And moreover, the whole thing was utterly pointless because Calvin Coolidge was going to win anyway and did win by an absolute landslide. Indeed, you've probably noticed that I haven't even mentioned who the Democrat was, and that's because nobody cares. But who was it? John Davis. One person cares. <laughs> I just think we, we had to get that in there. We, we couldn't leave it, leave it hanging. So, I mean, they're two, I mean, fascinating and very kind of important formative conventions. So let's get back to the, the basics of the, the Democrats. You know, we talked about how the Republicans are symbolized by an elephant. The Democrats are symbolized by a donkey. Uh, uh, so perhaps we could just quickly outline the kind of a basic historical account of the party, where it comes from. And since the Democrats feature heavily in your research, Paddy, could you give us a quick rundown of the party up to the 1960s? Sure. Um, just a footnote here, my uh, thesis was actually called Donkey Work. And, Very uh, nice. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so the donkey as a, as a symbol of the Democratic Party dates back, or it probably dates back to about the 1830s, uh, and to Andrew Jackson, who's sort of the party's founder. Jackson gets called a, a jackass by his opponents, and he responds by adopting the animal as a kind of mascot. One, one assumes he gets called that from a distance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did. He usually, with pistol range. He, yeah. without, without pistol range, yeah, you would hope. Um, so it's it's like suffragette or Quaker. It's something that's originally used as a term of derision that is adopted by uh, by its proponents. Um, but it's the cartoonist Thomas Nast who makes that sort of. Uh, who makes it, who popularizes it in the 1870s. Um, but a little potted history of the Democratic Party in, in less than a minute. Uh, that hesitation, repetition, or deviation. <laughs> so, the Democratic Party is, is the world's oldest political party, the oldest still active political party. It's founded in 1828, uh, from a split within the Democratic Republicans, which is the party of Thomas Jefferson. Not confusing for students at all. No, not at all <laughs> confusing for students. Uh, not confusing for anyone who's listened to the excellent musical Hamilton. Um, so the party evolves and fractures over the course of the 19th century. You have anti-slavery Democrats who go off and join the Whigs to form the Republicans, who we, we, we uh, uh, talked about uh, last week. Um, but it's the at its core, it's basically a, a populist and agrarian party for most of the 19th century. It's suspicious of 
suspicious of centralized power, uh, big government, and of financial interests. Um, and after the Civil War, the, the Democrats become a heavily Southern party. You see, you see the emergence of the Solid South, where the party of Lincoln, the GOP, is just not competitive. And is therefore, to a huge extent, the party of white supremacy and racial terrorism in the South, as we saw uh, Mark's discussion of the 1924 convention. And so is, so is there a kind of a genuine ideological and geographical split between the, the Southern and Northern elements of the Democratic Party? Yes, yes. The, uh, the Democratic Party is primarily a, a, is a coalition of various forces. Um, it's not an ideological party for, uh, for most of its history. Um, they have a strong presence in northern cities. They rely particularly on the votes of immigrants, you know, Irish, Italians, Eastern Europeans. Um, and the Democratic Party in the North is associated with urban machines, so things like Tammany Hall in New York. Um, in the 1870s, 1880s, you see the dominant faction in the party is the so-called Bourbon Democrats, who are pro-business, pro-tariffs, pro-gold standard. But by the 1890s, you the, the party's agrarian, ring, agrarian wing is ascendant again. And that's represented by uh, William Jennings Bryan, who is the nominee on three separate occasions. And Neville once becomes president. Um, he supports bimetallism. That's gold and silver backed currency. He's hostile to financial interests. He's anti-imperialist. Um, by the early 1900s, you see the Democratic Party becoming increasingly influenced by the progressive movement, sort of anti-corruption, antitrust uh, reform elements. Um, the first Democratic president of the 20th century is Woodrow Wilson. He passes a range of progressive measures, capital P. Uh, While well, at the same time being a gigantic racist. Absolutely. Income tax, Federal Reserve, antitrust legislation, and also resegregates Washington, D.C. Um, but I think it's, it's the Great Depression and, and the New Deal uh, previous subject of a podcast, of course, that has really sees the birth of the modern Democratic Party. Uh, it's under Franklin Roosevelt that Democrats become the pro-government party that the nation's welfare state is created. And the 1930s also sees the creation of the New Deal coalition, the electoral and political coalition that's going to uh, make the Democrats the nation's majority party until the 1970s. And that's an alliance of city machines, trade unions, uh, liberal intellectuals, farmers, African-Americans uh, and other ethnic minorities and, and the solid South. Um, the 1930s is the sort of first burst of liberal reformism in the 20th century. And the second is it comes in the 1960s with the presidencies of JFK and, and Lyndon Johnson. And uh, the Great Society, of course, discussed it in an earlier podcast. But I think it's worth saying here that you have at the moment of this, you have the apotheosis of liberal reform ambitions um, and it coupled with the Vietnam War, which puts enormous strain on the Democratic Party by the 1960s. Jefferson carries called the New Deal Coalition a, a fragile juggernaut. And by 1968, it's uh, starting to break apart. OK, that, I mean, that's, that was really interesting. Party. And I was just wondering, just to pick up on one development that I think also might be quite perplexing to listeners. You know, as we mentioned in the Republican podcast, the GOP don't control Congress between in the 50 years between 1954 and 1994. And that's largely because enough of this New Deal coalition that you've outlined holds together at the state level. Um, so they still get congressmen and senators elected in places where they just aren't competitive in presidential elections. And particularly we have the odd situation whereby presidential elections, the South tends to elect uh, Republicans and yet at state le level it stays loyal to the Democrats in many places. And arguably the process of ridding uh, the Democrats from the South is only complete two years ago in 2014 when sort of the last white uh, Democrats are, are removed from set, turfed out of office. I mean, why do you think this is? Um, 
Is it because Democrat, Southern Democrats are actually voting like Republicans or is there something else going on here? Um, yes, I think I, the point you make about sort of, I, th- I think you're right, it's a lot of it is due to the tenacity of party loyalties and the fact that it just takes a while for a generation of politicians who are in office to pass away. Um, if you like, there's a lot more ticket splitting um, so you, from the 1960s onwards um, in the South, but across the country, people vote for Democratic congressmen and uh, congresspeople and uh, re- Republican presidents. Uh, that's fairly common. Democrats also at a state level are, are able to be more conservative, more in tune with uh, Southern uh, Southern interests than, than they are at a national level. Obviously, um, and I think also the, um, the 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 enfranchisement of African American voters across the South um, really keeps the Democrats competitive in a way that they wouldn't necessarily be otherwise. I mean, there is there really isn't much of a you, you can't win as a Southern Democrat without African Americans. Just full stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's move into one of the kind of critical moments. I think one of the critical years of the nineteen sixties. I'd argue one of the critical years century. of the twentieth century. I mean, nineteen 1960- the millennium. 1968 <laughs> of, of the eon. Let's I mean let's let's not let's not fiddle about with these things. Uh, let's be let's be bold in our assertions. Yeah. Uh, I mean 1968 important in America, also important globally. I mean we see it as a, a time of near revolution in so many countries of mass protests by students, workers across Europe in in Mexico in, in various places in Eastern Europe. All that kind of thing. so much going on in 1968, and in the in the United States. You know, the Democrats are going to have their convention. Uh, Johnson has said earlier in the year that he's not going to stand again. So what about the Democratic convention of that, that year? It's a tumultuous, argumentative, violent event. What is happening there? Yeah, absolutely. If you've been following uh, the following the press in uh, some recent weeks, there's been a, a, quite a few comparisons between 2016 and, and, and 1968. Um, which I think is, is a little overblown is certainly true of, uh, it's certainly not true of the Democratic Party, which is, for all its, uh, uh, for all its contesting at the moment, is enormously harmonious compared to what it was in 68. Um, so when the Democrats gather for their convention in, in Chicago in August that year, the party is really is in a moment of acute existential crisis and it's, it seems to be on the verge of collapse. You have the Vietnam War, you have the urban crisis, you have the failures of the great society, and you have a kind of left-wing uh, new politics critique of establishment liberalism as undemocratic and insufficiently radical. And all of these things are combining together to, to pull up the democratic coalition apart. You have President Lyndon Johnson, who'd of course been elected in this enormous landslide four years earlier, had announced his intention not to seek a second term in the face of primary challenges from uh, Senators Eugene McCarthy and, and Robert Kennedy, both of whom drew strength from the new politics movement, um, which is sort of anti- is rooted in the anti-war movement and is also critical of Johnsonian liberalism more broadly. Um, the party is also having to fight off a challenge on its on its right flank from George Wallace, who's a an independent presidential candidate. He begun his career as a as a pro segregationist Alabama governor. He then turns into a populist scourge of the elites. Uh, there's, a, there's an assumption, I think, that Wallace is just going to be a problem for Democrats in the South, but he proves incredibly competitive in the North, he, I mean, particularly with the uh, unionized workers in, in, in the Midwest and um, unions like the, U, uh, the United Auto Workers 
I have to mount a sort of huge fight back to convince their members just to vote uh, democratic. Um, you know, in organizational terms, um, one one historian said that the Democratic Party is you know practically a Labour Party in 1968. It's really dependent on the unions. Um, so this is all kind of a huge problem for the party's nominee that year, Hubert Humphrey, who we've, we've mentioned uh, in my. Uh, Opening comments. Um, so Humphrey is Lyndon Johnson's vice president. He's formerly a you know a liberal darling, but he's fallen out of fa- fell out of favor. I shouldn't use the present tense. He fell out of favor, thanks to his support of the Vietnam War. And Humphrey wins the nomination in 1968 uh, without entering a single primary, although they are less important than only about 15% of delegates are are apportioned by primaries in 68. Um, and this prompts protests at the convention from the McCarthy and the Kennedy. Uh, forces, as well as from anti-war activists, and there are you know violent clashes outside the Chicago, uh, outside between uh, between the protesters and the Chicago police and the National Guard, who use very heavy-handed tactics. Um, this prompts um, a, a great deal of um, angry, uh, angry responses within the convention hall as well. Um, Abraham Ribicoff stands up and says, and accuses the mayor of Chicago, Richard Daly. Of uh, of Gestapo tactics on the streets of Chicago, Daly jumps up in the audience and uh, shouts an anti-Semitic slur at Ribicoff. Um and it's because this this sort of so the Democratic Party is really really um, uh, really in chaos at this point. And Humphrey, of course, goes on to lose that election to the Republican Richard Nixon, albeit quite narrowly, and quite very significantly as well. Every state in the South. With the exception of Texas, which, as an aside, Texas is uh, Democratic far longer than, than I think people expect it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but every state in the South is won by either Nixon or Wallace. Um, so the the solid South is just gone at this stage for, for the party. Yep. Yeah, no, and, and it's quite interesting what comes out of the 1968 election. You get the, the sort of Scammon and Wattenberg analysis of sort of two political analysts and they urge Democrats from this point to stop focusing on uh, the young, the poor and the black um, pointing out that they're no, they're not a majority of the electorate um, and that politics has become more about the social issue um, rather than sort of economic pocketbook issues on which Democrats used to be so successful in. And the, the 1968 convention I think Another effect of it sort of plays into this loss of law and order narrative that Nixon will push later. It's a sign that the the Democrats can't even put their own house in order, uh, let alone put the country's. Um, Although the fact that Nixon only just wins, I think, shows, and this is an argument, you know, Robert Mason makes, we've all been supervised by at one point, um, that this shows sort of the enduring strength of the New Deal coalition that Nixon only just squeaks home. Um, and Democrats, as we've already met, you know, they retain control of both houses of Congress. Just as an aside, though, on Humphrey, um, I find it fascinating how a guy who was, you know, he's a happy warrior, as he was known, you've pointed out what he did on civil rights way back before it was fashionable. Um, you know, he's he's key for Johnson in driving the Civil Rights Act through Congress and again, the Voting Rights Act. And here he is in 1968 being mocked by people of the left. And it's... I find it quite tragic with Humphrey because he's, he seems like one of American history's good guys, no matter what your sort of politics are. Uh, if anyone uh, re- has read um, Hunter S. Thompson's uh, book about the 1972 campaign, the terms in which he describes Humphrey are just, just venomous. 
Um, so it tells him he's a, it's a disgusting old wall healer who deserves to be put in a bottle and sent out with the Japanese current. You know, that's what <laughs> so it's incredibly, incredibly venomous. And one of the interesting things I think is the way that the '68 convention appears to the American public, because it's I mean, fam- I mean, famously ABC have William F. Buckley Jr. and Gore Vidal this series of head-to-head debates about the mm-hmm. conventions and all, all that kind of, kind of thing. And that becomes almost, a, in some ways, it's simplistic to say it's a microcosm of what's going on in the wider politics. But you have this kind of head-to-head and trading vitriolic insults and, you know, whether kind of, whether they're kind of like supporting protesters or wanting the protesters to be, you know, rounded up and taken away and thrown in jail and all these kind of things. You know, this is beamed out across the United yeah. States, the chaos that is happening in Washington. And, you know, two of America's, you know, Premier intellectuals yeah. are kind of like are almost coming to blows over this kind of thing on on national television. Yeah. And I mean, there's well. a, a brilliant documentary recently made about it called Best of Enemies. Best of enemies I think yeah. I, I checked out. I think it's on Netflix. Yeah. But Paddy, the what also comes out of the 1968 convention, you actually get some uh, quite technical changes. If you give, yep. give us a, a sort of brief uh, yep. report on what happens there and how it plays forward. Absolutely. So one of the, I think one of the most significant developments at the 68 convention uh, was the passage of a resolution supported by Humphrey, actually, to, to create a commission on party structure and delegate selection. So this is a response to the uh, accusations, to the protests and the accusations that Humphrey has sort of sewn up the nomination um, without having submitted himself to vote by party members. Um, so it's called the McGovern-Fraser Commission after its, its two chairmen, Senator George McGovern and uh, Representative Donald Fraser. Uh, its remit uh, is to come up with uh, recommendations to democratise the presidential primary process, to open it up to groups that have been sort of previously marginalised uh, within within party decision-making, most notably and sort of explicitly uh, women, racial minorities and the young. Um, the recommendations that it, it makes, uh, most of which are eventually implemented, called for convention delegates to, convention delegations, excuse me, to represent the demographics of their state, uh, more accurately, for delegations to be elected directly through primaries or caucuses rather than being appointed by party leaders in the state, which had been. So what, what we're seeing today, basically, or what we've yes, seen over the past few months, yeah. Absolutely. Um, the reform process is very, very contentious. Um, the AFL-CIO, which is the U.S.'s largest um, uh, labor federation, is generally opposed um, because it, it, it loses its kind of brokerage position within the within the party as a result, um, and it ultimately withdraws its representative from the commission's meetings and. It, you know, denounces the recommendations as illegitimate. Um, but I think McGovern Fraser is hugely important for transforming, first of all, just who makes up the Democratic Party, you know, who the convention delegates actually are, and also for creating the mass participation primary process for choosing the uh, presidential nominees that we recognise today. And if, like me, you're very interested in the technical details of, of, of party reform, I recommend Byron Schaefer's Quiet Revolution. Um, which is a full account of the actual reform process. So, I mean, out of all this, I mean, there's this kind of you know carnage goes on in the 1968 campaign, and Nixon, the Republican, you know, emerges victorious, and all that kind. Of, there's one, there's one figure from the Democratic Party who seems to emerge with with credit, and it's you know Hubert Humphrey's vice presidential running mate, uh, Ed Muskie of Maine, who is eventually appointed much later on Jimmy Carter's second Secretary of State. Uh, also, there's like Senator Ted Kennedy, 
who's kind of like ready to pick up the mantle of his fallen brothers, JFK and RFK and all that kind of thing. And, you know, both of these men, Muskie and Kennedy, have kind of got this, you know, kind of this hook into the, let's not mince words, the quite frankly paranoid Richard Nixon, uh, who fear, I mean, he's really worried that in, you know, in 1972, when it comes to the elections, that one of those men is going to give him a really strong, strong challenge to his kind of, you know, claim to a second term. But in 1972, the Democrats then go and pick George McGovern, a little-known liberal senator from South Dakota, and Nixon is re-elected in a just an absolute landslide. So before we go on to like talk about McGovern himself, how and why is he nominated in the first place? Yeah, so I mean, before Paddy gives us uh, an insight into the McGovern campaign itself, uh, I'll just quickly comment on the other two figures you mentioned. I mean, Ted Kennedy, who really, I think Richard Nixon must have just lost hundreds of hours of sleep um, on Ted Kennedy. I mean, uh, yeah, no, Nixon's fascinating on, on this and on Muskie. I mean, Kennedy um, is, you know, sort of seen as the natural heir to the Ken- uh, to obviously to the Kennedy legacy. But in 1969, uh, an incident happens where he's driving uh, in a place called Chappaquiddick off the coast of Massachusetts um, with a, uh, one of his young advisors in the car with him, a young woman. And Kennedy drives off the side of the road and they plough into water and Kennedy manages to escape. Uh, Mary Jo Kopechny, I think her name was, who, wasn't, who was in the car with him, doesn't. Uh, Kennedy doesn't. Uh, call for help for about a whole nine hours um, and he actually ends up receiving a sort of suspended two months of sentence sentence and if anything it's incredible that Ted Kennedy actually had a political career after that and went on to achieve what he did given you know the seriousness of what happened Um, in terms of Ed Muskie well here you have Nixon's dirty tricks actually um, working with the the committee to re-elect the president or appropriately as it's known as creep um, basically, Ed Musk had been plagued by the Manchester Union leader in New Hampshire, the paper there. Um, and I believe there was a letter sent into by someone who was basically a front for creep. Um, and one of the things that the letter, I think, does it, um, this comment passed on Muskie's wife at one point. And Muskie's giving a speech in defense of this. And it's snowing at the time. And uh, during the, the speech, there is a moment where it's unclear whether Muskie, in defence of his wife, cries or whether it is actually uh, <laughs> a snowflake that has melted on his eye. Um, and But at that point, it's sort of, it's, it was one of these campaign moments. You never know how much it was about that. But it's what is recorded as Muskie's campaign just goes off the rails. Um, uh, but, but from from the idea that he's supposed to cry um, having been attacked or in defence of his wife, as if there's something wrong when someone cries in the moment. We're in the, we're in the Nixon era. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, we're, men, we're men are men, and administrations are corrupt. It would only be two years before him and Kissinger were cuddling and crying as uh, Nixon was about to resign. So right. things swings and roundabouts. A hearty handshake at best. <laughs> well, yes, I mean, um, Muskie is actually the considered the front runner. Um, in the years after 1968, and it's widely assumed that either he'll, well, it's widely assumed that he will be the nominee after after uh, after Chap Quiddick and Ted Kennedy um, looks a little less golden, shall we say? Um, a lot of the criticisms of, of Muskie are from uh, are well, come out start really with people in his campaign. 
Um, there is a sense if you, uh, if people like Robert Shrum who complain that the problem with Muskie is that he just, he, he, the reason he's going to be president is that everyone expects him to be president. And there's no real rationale for his candidacy. And he seems not to have a rationale for his candidacy other than that he would quite like to be the president. And this is not the case, of course, with the eventual, uh, nominees, George McGovern. Um, so the 1972 campaign is the first that's conducted under the new rules that we were just talking about. Um, and McGovern is the beneficiary of it. As you said, he's, you know, he's a little known liberal South Dakota senator. Um, he emerged in the 1960s as a leading opponent of the Vietnam War. And I think this is, this is absolutely crucial. His early opposition, early and quite forceful opposition in explaining how he manages to, to sort of capture parties. S- similar dynamic to Obama being able to say yes. he voted against the Iraq War. Or yes. sorry, voted against, but give a speech against. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, um, I think that's a very apt comparison. Yeah. Um, in 1968, McGovern had actually stepped in to lead Robert Kennedy's campaign after, after the latter was assassinated in, in June. And in 1971, he steps down from his role as chair of the reform commission. So he's, he is the McGovern of McGovern Fraser to mount his own bid for the presidency. And what this, of course, means is that he's, he's intimately familiar with the new <laughs> party's new rules. And therefore he knows exactly what kind of campaign he should be running. Um, he's very low in the polls originally. The, the sort of, the, um, the well-known, uh, political bookie Jimmy the Greek gave him odds of 200 to 1 at the beginning of the, of the campaign. And there are signs at the convention saying, where are you now, Jimmy the Greek? J- Jimmy um, the Greek doesn't sound like a figure I would trust to put a bit on. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, probably not. Um, so he's, he's considered a long shot, a real long shot, but he runs a really brilliant campaign in the primaries and relies on in this enormous army of grassroots supporters. And he's able to leapfrog more established candidates. Um, he attracts considerable opposition from more centrist figures in the party. He's branded the candidate of asset amnesty and abortion by one unnamed Democrat, um, who may actually incidentally be uh, Thomas Eagleton, who eventually makes his vice presidential nominee. Um, and... Richard Nixon eventually takes up, uh, or the Nixon campaign take up that slogan as well and use it to, to denounce McGovern in the general election as, as a sort of, um, a crazy left winger who, who is, uh, completely out of step with the cultural concerns of middle America. Um, so the op- opposition to, uh, McGovern within the Democratic Party coalesces around the candidacy of Hubert Humphrey, um, who is coming back for a second tilt at the windmill. Ooh, I like the literary <laughs> reference there, very good. So, I mean, what about the 1972 convention uh, itself? Takes place in, uh, I mean, the heat and humidity of like Miami Beach in Florida in yes. July of 1972. Yeah. One hopes that by this point they had air conditioning yeah. in the convention building. Mm-hmm. Do they have air conditioning? Yes. Uh, but I thought so because the, the Republicans held theirs at the same place four years earlier and Richard Nixon was known to sweat <laughs> profusely. That's, so that's I would imagine like, that they had already per, Perhaps we'll do a future uh, episode of the podcast on the history of air conditioning in America. And it's, <laughs> it's actually hugely politics. consequential. Hugely yeah. consequential. Yeah. So, so, status in American politics. Takes, takes, place, <laughs> takes place in Miami Beach in the, you know, the height of summer in 1972. And apparently fairly open, democratic with a small d, mm. and quite chaotic mm. event. So, Paddy, take us forward from there. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's the most chaotic democratic convention since 1968. Um, and it, as you say, it's it's very open, very democratic, small d, um, and as a result, is is very unsettled. It, it's it's the party trying to find a new equilibrium. They've adapted all these new rules and it needs, it needs to sort of 
resettle. Uh, not helped by the fact that McGovern is not the uh, is not the agreed nominee of the party. There are still uh, very many holdouts to his to his nomination. Uh, so the McGovern campaign has to spend the first few days heading off these series of kind of obscure parliamentary challenges from the anybody but McGovern forces, all of which are supposed to deny him the nomination. And they also have to contain their own supporters um, and ensure that the platform that is eventually produced is not, uh, as they say, so radical as to be alienating. So they end up, uh, for example, you know, blocking a, pla- a plank in support of gay marriage. They block a plank that would have got rid of, uh, would have um, got rid of the um, uh, tax deductions for mortgages. Mercy. How how much support did the plank in support of gay marriage have in 1972? I mean, that's fascinating that it's even not, being discussed. Yeah, not it? not a huge amount, but it is uh, it is the McGovern forces who are machinating to make sure that it gets defeated and defeated heavily. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are yes, there are a, a huge number of, of planks from all different wings of the party. There's you know one to um, there's one to ban busing. There's one to enforce prayer in schools. You know, so it's the left and the right are trying to take advantage of of these new these new rules. The convention is, is in fact so drawn out that uh, McGovern himself wasn't able to give his acceptance speech until 2.45 in the morning. Prime time, baby. For Guam. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, in fact, in midway through the convention, the Republicans in May 72 are holding theirs in Miami Beach as well about two weeks after the Democrats. And midway through the convention, Democratic representatives open um, uh, open negotiations with the Republicans for what they're going to do if their convention isn't finished, <laughs> um, if it runs on for several weeks, uh, as it has done uh, in, in previous cycles. Um, so McGovern comes out of this, um, and it's, again, one of the most important things about the convention is how it looks to the rest of America. So it looks chaotic, it looks radical, it looks like, you know, it looks like a load of hippies have taken over the Democratic Party. Um, and McGovern ends up losing the general election very heavily, as you've already said. He carries only one state, and that's Massachusetts. And looking at sort of the breakdown of the vote afterwards, it seems to suggest that the New Deal coalition had had collapsed. You know, Nixon wins all these traditional democratic groups. He wins the South. He wins blue-collar workers. He wins Catholics. You know, he, he massively increases his support among union workers. Um, so this sense that the... the that Nixon is pulling together this new Republican coalition from the fragments of the New Deal. So we have, I mean, a, a giant victory for Nixon. Despite all that we now know about Nixon, about about Watergate, about the dirty tricks against the McGovern campaign, about the secret bombings of Cambodia and all these kind of things that were going on, Nixon comes out the other side with a huge, almost an increased mandate. From you know, from '68, he's a hugely you know popular, victorious president, all that kind of thing. But again, just as a, a small addendum, there, Nixon wins that majority, but fails to carry once again fails to carry either House of Congress. Um, and he's when when during his celebrations with Kevin Phillips, he t- says to Kevin Phillips, one of his aides, uh, "That's how the press are going to piss on the whole thing." <laughs> so he he really enjoys the victory. Uh, <laughs> Nick Nixon always always finding something sour to talk about at any point. Yeah, he famously just couldn't enjoy victory. Yeah, that's the, probably the happiest moment of his life as well. Yeah, <laughs> and despite despite the fact it was what he it was everything that he sought: victory, power, defeating others, mm-hmm. you know, seeing others trodden beneath his feet, and all that kind of thing. So, what's the legacies? I mean, McGovern, you know, in many ways, you know, it's a failure electorally. Despite all the high ideals and everything, and all this, what's the legacy for the for the Democratic Party 
What's, what's McGovern's legacy? What does he do? Yeah. Well, I think, uh, well, the Ronald Radosh, who's a conservative democratic writer, um, he, he said that the McGovern campaign represented, like quite like this quote, if I don't agree with it, represented the seizure of the party by a new kind of liberalism, one that spelled permissiveness and moral nihilism and then ignored and ridiculed the conservative desires of work, white ethnic working class Americans who had once voted Democrat as a matter of ritual. And I think this is a view that prevails for many Democrats, that the, the, um, that the McGovern campaign is something damaging and self-indulgent, that it's dragging the Democratic Party away from electability. Um, <clears throat> but I, I think this is too... And I, I think but to think of the McGovern campaign as some kind of um, terrible aberration is to underestimate the extent to which it really has a formative effect on the modern Democratic Party. Um, I think, the, for a start, the, the campaign brings a new establishment into the party. And McGovern's campaign manager, Gary Hart, goes on to become a senator from Colorado and a presidential candidate in the 1980s. Two of, uh, two of his, uh, McGovern's organizers in Texas, called uh, Bill Clinton and Hillary Rodden, who some you may have heard of. They've, they've gone to have, you know, modest, successful, modestly successful careers in democratic politics. Um, and it, it the, the, the kind of, the demographics, uh, that of McGovern's coalition are very much like the demographics of, say, Obama's coalition in 2008. It's, it's younger. It's more racially diverse. Um, it's more, um, educated. And in a sense, um, the, the McGovern campaign is, is just a kind of, is out of its time. It's just running in the wrong country. Can I just say, it's interesting you talk about the kind of diversity of McGovern's campaign, what it does to the Democratic Party and everything. I'm just wondering, just out of you know, sheer curiosity, how much does McGovern and what he does to the Democratic Party draw upon, you know, the, the kind of countercultural changes that have been happening in America in the 1960s, you know, anti-Vietnam War protest, you know, you know, cultural change, all that kind of thing. How much does, does he really draw upon that and make it part of the political the political landscape, if that yeah. makes any sense at all. Yeah, it's intriguing. Um, I think you have to, I suppose you could draw a distinction between McGovern and the McGovern campaign, because mm. McGovern himself is, in many respects, quite a conservative mm. guy. I mean, he, he believes, in talking about this sort of new, this cultural shift, he believes, for example, that abortion should be left to the states. Um, he doesn't support uh, any kind of national guarantee for national right of abortion. Um, he, in, in, in 1976, he ends up voting for Gerald Ford because he doesn't like uh, Jimmy Carter very much. I never heard that yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. So um, he himself is actually, you know, a fairly, a fairly square guy. <laughs> um, but I think, that, yeah, the campaign plays a huge role in bringing these things into the Democratic Party. Um, and I think... Um, the McGovern campaign represents the passing of, an, uh, as I said, a sort of old New Deal establishment and the, mo the moving in of an, a different democratic establishment. One of the problems people, t historians tend to do is they conflate new politics Democrats uh, with um, kind of the new left. Or with mm -hmm. um, with hippies, yeah. and they've already gone violent by this point with exactly. the weathermen and everything exactly. like that. Yeah. Exactly, new politics Democrats are very much the people who are sort of working through the system. These are people who are committed to getting the Democratic Party into power, who are um, interested in policy change and in electing office. They're not as um, they're not as radical as people like Ronald Radosh fear. Mm -hmm. All right, okay. And I was also wondering, I mean, so. 
as we mentioned on the last podcast, that Watergate, um, seeing the downfall of Richard Nixon, was a boon for the Democrats' electorate. Um, you have the Watergate babies, which I'm sure I've heard you give a paper on before. And do you think there's a sense that what I'm just wondering? Do you think Watergate stops Democrats from examining their own failures? Um, I mean, McGovern has this crushing loss, but yet two years later they don't really have to deal with it because they get a lot of influx in '74 and then '76 on the back of the Republicans' unpopularity that we talked about. Then along comes Jimmy Carter, who's kind of an aberration um, because no, not many Democrats saw him coming. And then many of them don't actually work particularly well with the Carter White House. So do you have these sort of years where there's no real introspection or guiding principles to the Democrats, or do you think it's different? Um, Yes, I think that's broadly correct. I think one of the things that is disadvantageous for the Democrats in the 1970s is there's no clear moment of realignment. Um, You know, so they tend to kind of swing between despair and jubilation. Um. So you have, I mean, even with the crushing loss to Richard Nixon in 1972, they still hold Congress. So they can still say, well, look, we're still the nation's majority party. It's just we nom- we had a bad nominee. So it goes, you know. Um, so I think that absolutely is, is a block to introspection. And two years later, they're winning these huge congressional majorities. And they are convinced, you know, uh, rightly as it turns out, that they're on course to win back. Uh, the White House in 1976, which would return the Democrats to unified control of government, um, as it had been under, you know, Lyndon Johnson, as it had been under, under Franklin Roosevelt. Um, yes, I think, this, so I think the Democrats are very lucky that the, the Republicans stumble at that particular moment, at a moment when, uh, the, the GOP could be capitalizing on the crisis within the Democratic Party. If you're a Democrat, it's very lucky the Republicans decide to have, decide to sabotage themselves at the very moment that you're struggling to, to adapt to the changes of the 1960s. On to 76 then, and uh, obviously Jimmy Carter becomes president. And for those of you interested in the Carter presidents, we have not one but two whole episodes on Jimmy Carter. Uh, so check out your feeds if you're interested in that. But Malcolm, let me come to you briefly on this. Um, Carter's quite an odd Democrat, you know, he's pretty conservative on economic issues, um, but more conciliatory on foreign policy. Does your does Carter, um, in your mind, um, apart from, you know, making you happy when you think about him, does he stand apart from his own party? I think Carter's a very interesting one. I mean, Dan Sargent, the historian, recently argued that Carter was America's first post-Cold War president, in that... Because we're in a time of detente, and for many people, both within the American political establishment and, and around the world, it looks like the Cold War is over, in a sense. Not that the Cold War is over, the Soviet Union has gone away, or America has gone away, but that the Cold War is declining in importance as a, a feature of the global environment. And I think this is actually quite true, because the decline in the importance of the Cold War and the, the power of detente allows the 1970s to release, it's like a pressure cooker, all this other stuff comes out. I think it's no surprise that we see new forces in the world coming out in the 1970s. I think at the end of the 70s, for example, we see the very important rise of political Islam as a major force. That comes out of the era of detente. So there's many other forces that are bubbling up and out, nationalisms, all these kind of things are coming out. We see the same again at the end of the Cold War. So I think the Cold War keeps a a kind of lid on things. And Carter doesn't doesn't see himself as a Cold War president. His inaugural address 
is really interesting. It avoids all the Cold War bombast and all the rhetoric that's characterised these events for the past you know, you know, 30, 30 odd years. He's got a much more forgiving, conciliatory tone. He doesn't go all out and attack the USSR and communism in general. He doesn't do this as, as other, almost every other incoming president has done. And Carter's also fundamentally a moralist. I mean, he situates his foreign policy outlook, which is, I mean, the area I'm particularly interested in. He situates his outlook as returning morality and humanitarianism to the centre of US foreign policy. And, I mean, on, on a whole range of issues, he faces a lot of criticism and challenges from his own party and, and gradually has to become much more of a cold warrior. I mean, you can see that in the, the area that I'm particularly interested in, his, his staunch defence of nuclear non-proliferation policy, he's suffering from attacks and challenges within his own party in Congress. You know, the likes of you know Abraham Ribicoff, uh, Stuart Symington, John Glenn, the former astronaut, they're all trying to pu- push forward their own nuclear non-proliferation policies and this butts up against Carter's ideas for nuclear non- non-proliferation, which again has become a huge issue in the 1970s. So he's being challenged on foreign policy issues within and beyond his party by the way he adopts a moralistic humanitarian tone which really upsets some other other leaders in you know in western europe in eastern europe in asia and all that kind of really problematic he's also painfully aware i would suggest carter is painfully aware of american economic decline mm-hmm. really really painfully aware of it i'd argue that he's actually he's very perceptive on issues like energy and like you know climate change and he said he's carter says stuff that the American people and many people within the Democratic Party simply do not want to hear. No, I mean, and, and one of those people who doesn't want to hear what Carter says is, as we've already mentioned them earlier in the podcast, is Ted Kennedy. Ted Kennedy, yeah. Who is still around. And in 1980, he launches this sort of exotic campaign to unseat a president of his own party. And uh, Jimmy Carter, while well, he gets more and more unpopular as the year goes on, at the time Ted Kennedy does it, it's not like... Jimmy Carter's it's like as as much of a low as Lyndon Johnson was when he was challenged. You know, this isn't Vietnam and race riots going on. So what what do you think's going on with Ted Kennedy's challenge here, Paddy? Um just to sort of skip back a little bit, uh, I think one of the striking things about Carter is that unlike a lot of um well, unlike for example Lyndon Johnson, uh, although they were uh although Carter is born in the 1920s, but unlike LBJ, he, he grows up kind of outside his party's traditions. Um, between Carter and Reagan, Reagan is the one who is far more influenced as a, as a young man by FDR. He's the one who will cite FDR as a hero. Carter really doesn't. He has a very a kind of distant relationship with Franklin Roosevelt and with uh, the Democratic Party. And when he comes into office, he has an extremely fractious relationship with the congressional with congressional Democrats, particularly Ted Kennedy. Um, one of the reasons is Carter's just not very good at congressional management, so he ends up needlessly offending a lot of um, a lot of people. There are stories about Speaker of the House, um, also no Majority Leader Tip O'Neill, having to phone up the White House and ask for invitations to the uh, to the inaugural balls, <laughs> um, which is you know it's a small thing, but the, these kind of favors are the things that grease um, um, 
uh, sort of legislative management in, in Washington, D.C. The other important thing about Carter's relationship with uh, Congress is that most Democrats in Congress don't feel like they owe Carter anything. He doesn't run ahead of very many Democrats in 1976. The Democrats had increased their majority in 74. You know, they don't feel like they owe anything to Carter's coattails. If anything, they feel that Carter owes them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, that, I think, colours the relationship from the outset. Um, the first confrontation between Carter and Kennedy is actually over the issue of health care reform. This is Kennedy's really, this is Kennedy's, uh, the, the policy passion of his, of his legislative career, if you like. Um, so he's pushing for, when Carter comes into office, he's pushing the president to pass a very comprehensive reform of health care, something that's going to extend coverage to all Americans. Carter is very much opposed to this and, well, he's not opposed to healthcare reform per se. They have a so fundamental disagreement over how it should be implemented. Carter wants a sort of multi-stage process. The first thing that happens is you introduce cost containment to try and keep hospital costs down. And then if that works, you introduce further reforms. Kennedy's attitude is you should just introduce the comprehensive reform, you know, just go all the way in. Um, this... It, leads to an increasingly uh, contentious, fractious relationship between Kennedy and Carter. And and Kennedy concludes that Carter's fundamental problem is that he just can't lead. Um, I think they have very different attitudes towards what a president is supposed to do. Um, I think for for Kennedy, the presidency is primarily an existential thing. It's a leadership through action. It's about doing stuff. Whereas for Jimmy Carter, leadership is a much more, is a, is a kind of, is a more collaborative process. Uh, and that's why he, you know, he gives that famous speech, the so-called Malaise speech in, in 1979. Um, and which sort of calls on all Americans to work together. What, Ted Kennedy watches that speech and says later that he was horrified by it. He thought it was a president abdicating responsibility. Um, and so Kennedy ends up uh, launching this challenge in 1980. And initially, it seems like he's going to he's going to win. Um, he's polling well ahead of Carter. He's actually polling very far ahead of Reagan. This is one of the things that uh, is most striking about the campaign. Um, is had it's intriguing. Had Kennedy been on the ticket in 1980 uh, instead of Carter, it is interesting to, uh, to wonder whether or not he would have been able to win. Um, three things I think scupper his campaign. This is something that um, Tim Stanley discusses in his book: um, the legacy of Chappaquiddick and the sort of sense that. Ted Kennedy is just an immoral person, uh, is uh, an issue. Uh, a bad campaign, the Kennedy people just run, a, in practical terms, a pretty bad campaign. And it's quite only quite late that they get better at it. And by then, Jimmy Carter's already uh, has won enough primaries just to put him over the top. And also foreign policy. Um, so the invasion of Afghanistan by the Soviets and the um, Iranian hostage crisis leads to, I think, a kind of coalescing effect. Um, around the president, both within the Democratic Party and in the country, and a sense that you shouldn't, uh, you know, change horses in midstream. But I mean, ironically, it's foreign policy that is one of the huge contributors to yeah. Carter eventually being defeated. Mm. You know, in the election, it's his, you know, not resolving the Iranian hostage crisis and the embarrassments around there. You know, stuff happening with you know the seeming re, re I mean, the, not the seeming, the actual reinvigoration of the Cold War, the seeming rise of Soviet power, and you know the accusations from Republicans that you know, you know particularly von Reagan that Carter is weak on defence, weak on national security. Mm. He's cut defence spending to the bone, which actually isn't true. Defence spending declined 
far more under Kennedy and uh, Kennedy and Ford, uh, under Nixon and Ford, than it ever did under Carter. In fact, by the time Reagan makes his accusations, defense spending is going back up under Carter because he's become a la- you know latterly a bit of a Cold War hawk. After you know Afghanistan, various other things happen. So that takes us kind of rather neatly uh, into the 1980s, where we get to a decade where the Democrats are going to get thumped three times in presidential elections. It's probably underselling it. First, Jimmy Carter, after serving his first term as president. Then Carter's vice president, Walter Mondale. And then finally, Michael Dukakis. Uh, so in, in our, one of our previous podcasts, Joe Ryan Hume talked very convincingly about the often you know, ignored strengths of liberal Democrats during the, kind of the, the, the Reagan decade. But the party was like kind of on the back foot by this point after Carter's defeat. Yeah, I mean, I'll leave the definitive judgment on this to Paddy. Um, but, I mean, i definitely say so. What I find most interesting as uh, someone who's not studied the 1980s particularly extensively, so feel free to put me bang to rights here, Paddy, is that the Democratic Congress agrees to do a lot of things that Ronald Reagan wants them to do. Um, particularly after Reagan survives his assassination attempt by uh, John Hinckley Jr. and uh, a couple of months into his presidency in 1981. And... And it's sort of an interesting comparison to just how different relationship is between Reagan and Tip O'Neill and Democrats in general to what's going on with Obama and your John Boehner and Republicans um, over the past uh, like eight, eight years or so. I mean, my impression is that the Democrats led by Speaker Tip O'Neill gave Reagan a lot of what he wanted, particularly in terms of cutting taxes and spending programs and also ramping up the war on drugs, although I'd say that's quite a bipartisan effort that's going on at that time. I can't just pin that at Reagan's door. Perhaps you can maybe shed a wee bit more light on this dynamic. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's definitely an accurate characterization in, in the sort of initial stages. Um, when the Reagan administration comes in, they are very keen to present the election of 1980 as a repudiation of democratic liberalism and an endorsement of Republican conservatism, which I don't think is, is an accurate conception of the, of the election. I think that's as, as much a repudiation of Jimmy Carter as anything else. Um, and, but certainly within, in, within that first year in 1981, the Democrats um, within Congress do go along with this to a considerable extent. There is a widespread sense that um, that the Democrats have lost a mandate. Uh, and that's not only because Reagan wins the, uh, wins the presidency, he also carries the Senate. So I think there is a sense that, in, that even if they feel like liberalism isn't dead, that the Democratic Party has been sort of knocked back and they, they need to give Reagan an opportunity to try and govern. And in fact... Um, uh, I think a lot of them are just uh, relieved that the pressure's off them after four years of uh, trying to handle the crises of the 1970s under Jimmy Carter. Gillis Long, who's a representative from Louisiana, uh, tells a journalist that um, he 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 uh, he hasn't felt this. He's used the phrase psychologically. I feel psychologically lighter than I have in years. <laughs> is, is there any sense at all of also wanting to see if uh, Reagan's what's what already has made Republican contenders called voodoo economics to see them fail? Yes. Yes, absolutely. There's um, there's certainly a sense that uh, they want to give, or among the Democratic Party, they want to give Reagan enough rope to hang himself, basically. Yeah. Tip O'Neill gets criticised very heavily for um, what people see as lacklustre opposition to Reagan in the in, in um, the early days of the administration. You know, he goes off on a he goes off on a jaunt to a group of Pacific Islands while Reagan is ringing round for support mm-hmm. for his tax cut. Um, and O'Neill's response to this is, um, I'm, you know, just 
just wait, uh, I'm going to get some Republican scalps down the road. Mm-hmm. So um, that's literally what he says to, to Time magazine. Um, I'm I'm taking names. He says. Yeah. Um, so there is this there is this sense that they need they can't oppose him immediately, um, or it's just bad tactics to oppose yeah. him immediately. They need to wait until Reagan gets into a bit of trouble. And obviously what happens is first you get this recession mm. and then Reagan backs off a bit from his economic policies and then yeah. the economy takes off. And yeah. so he doesn't get hanged as they'd hoped. Absolutely. But they, they are able to, for example, um, frustrate Reagan's efforts to cut back some parts of the welfare state, particularly Social Security. I mean, Social Security is there is an attempted reform of Social Security from 1981, which is a kind of comprehensive failure for the Reagan administration they just they forced to backtrack totally and a huge part of that is this the efforts of um, Tip O'Neill and other Democrats in Congress so I mean we talked in the previous podcast I'm thinking about the Republicans about how conservatives eventually capture for want of a better term the Republican Party by the late 1970s now is it true to say that the Democratic Party doesn't polarise as far in one direction during the latter third of the 20th century. Is that a fair characterisation of what happens? Um, yes, I'd say so. I'd say the, the, the Democratic Party still um, still has some fairly significant splits um, uh, in, in the way the Republican Party doesn't. Um, and there is there is no agreement as to what liberalism looks like in the 1980s. I think in this in the way that there is basically a, a, an agreement of what conservatism looks like and what conservatism means. So I think that is a huge part of the issue. You have um, so you have uh, still fairly conservative Democrats who are going to become who are based sort of in the Southwest, going to become the Democratic Leadership Council later. Um, and you have, you know, on the other wing of the party, you have um, Jesse Jackson and the uh, the Rainbow Coalition. And uh, Jesse Jackson is something that um, uh, Joe Brian Hume talked about a lot in his mm-hmm. um, in in the podcast he, he was featured in a few weeks ago. And I think he, you know, it's right to characterize Jackson as one of the probably one of the most important Democratic politicians of the twentieth century. Yeah, um, and I think as well, you see. Uh, Bill Clinton as well emerging as a sort of third way Democrat, particularly after Republicans win that huge victory in '94 we talked about before, um, and and Clinton at his you know second inaugural address in in 1997 uh, declares you know the era of big government is over, and uh, famously seeming to repudiate one of the sort of big tenets of a uh, of New Deal liberalism and great society liberalism. And of course, the era of big government wasn't over. Um, as as we already discussed, even George W. Bush continued it in, in the 2000s, but I think this is very much a marker of what's going on. The Democrats, as you said, I think are struggling to find themselves. And I think it's only actually during the Obama years where progressivism has been, you know, sort of taken on as a way of defining Democrats that they've had any sort of unity in this regard. So, Malcolm... Uh, obviously, the Clinton presidency begins not long after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War, following George H. W. Bush, Poppy Bush, who's already largely seemed to have failed, uh, sorry, fared pretty well in this new world order. So, how does how does Clinton fare? Does he have you know everybody always seems to have a doctrine? Does uh, does Clinton have a doctrine? Clinton does have a doctrine, but it's not articulated as one kind of thing in the way that you know we have the the Truman Doctrine. You know, for example, I mean, there's the famous kind of foundational doctrine of the American Cold War. It's not quite like that. Clinton 
so Clinton has quite a tough time of it foreign policy wise. I mean, in the post cold, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, the the lack of the Cold War takes the lid off a lot of things, and we see t- tensions, political tensions, you know, national tensions and local tensions that the Cold War has kept suppressed. Because that Cold War lid comes off, those tensions come out again. So, for example, in the Balkans, mm-hmm. the Yugoslav wars. I mean, you know, Yugoslavia, you know, kept together by the Cold War. When that Cold War is gone, suddenly you have these movements for national independence, for along religious lines and kind of ethnic lines and all that kind of thing. So, Clinton faces all these challenges in the post-Cold War world. Uh, the ball, as I said, the Balkans and the ethnic cleansing that takes place, the fissures that open up between like NATO allies, so between you know between Britain and America, for example, over what's happening in the Balkans, these all present these real challenges to the Clinton administration. Uh, events like the intervention in Somalia has a huge effect. Operation Gothic Serpent and the disaster of Operation Gothic Serpent, where you know American. Uh, soldiers are killed in the attempt to try and capture uh, Muhammad Farah Adid. Is this the one known as Black Hawk Down? Black is this made more yeah. famous, made famous by Black Hawk Down. Absolutely, and that just makes kind of like you know American military and you know political you know leaders just be like, whoa, we don't want to get involved in this stuff anymore. So by the end of his presidency, Clinton articulates a, a doctrine on national security that that kind of divides. You have like national interests, national security interests, and humanitarian interests, mm-hmm. and the two things he sees the two things as quite different. Mm-hmm. So the national the national interests are things that might national security interests are things that might provide an, an existential threat to the United States. Climate change is one of them that he yeah. cites, or you know major destabilizing wars in other parts of the world that might generate uh, flows of refugees. Yeah, humanitarian interests are ones that. It's not a vital interest to U.S. security to perhaps intervene, but it is within U.S. values, ideas of democracy and humanitarianism. Yeah, and that, that sort of come. Uh, Clinton forever said, you know, he re- regretted not having intervened in Rwandan's genocide, for example, because of black the, the whole Black Hawk Down thing had put him off. That, and, but then eventually goes into Bosnia. So, yeah, I mean, it seems quite a reactive the, the, there's a tradition here which I'd just like to point out just for, for one moment in that Clinton is in many ways part of a long tradition of US non-intervention and genocide mm-hmm. it's, it's become almost a just not getting involved and you see it in Rwanda mm-hmm. you know, despite all the efforts of you know like the, the leader of the, the UN forces Romeo Dallar the Canadian uh, military officer there uh, nothing is done nothing is done now a lot of this, you can have a debate about whether is when is interventionism justified, you know, all that kind of thing. But I mean, you're right that he doesn't intervene, or the US doesn't intervene in that case. But I think that's part of a longer and wider tradition. So Clinton's going away from like you know foreign policy issues, and we've we've only really touched upon it very briefly there. Uh, Clinton's policies on, you know. The persistent issue of race in America, particularly welfare reform and its associations with race and racism uh, in America, caused a lot of controversy, you know, during kind of like this particular election cycle that we're in at the moment. Rather than, you know, rather than looking at Clinton specifically, you know, since we discussed the Republican approach to racial matters over the course of like the past five decades, 
To what extent do Democrats, do you think, over since the 1960s, deserve praise or criticism on, you know, on racial issues in the United States? Um, I think I'd be inclined to say qualified praise. Um, I, I'm a believer that to a huge extent a party is a reflection of its coalition. Um, and the Democrats have been for the latter half of the 20th century the more multiracial party. They've been the party of African Americans in particular. And although they haven't, although leading, I'm quite sweeping here, but although they certainly haven't always, um, acted totally in the interests of those constituents, um, the, uh, they have continued to advance, they have continued to pursue policies that have made meaningful differences in the lives of uh, racial minorities in the United States. Um, and that's why they can say African Americans in particular continue to vote in huge numbers. I don't believe that a huge section of the electorate is subject to a kind of false consciousness. I think they vote for that party because they see that party as representing their interests. So, I mean, that, you know, that being, that being the case, and we're getting towards the end here, let's briefly touch on Barack Obama. Uh, who I think deserves at least a bit of a mention, perhaps, as a very significant democratic... I think history will forget. ...politician, you think? It's been an uneventful presidency. So, I mean, what do you think? I mean, the nominee... Not even the election, the nomination of Barack Obama as, you know, the Democratic Party candidate in 2008, what does that say about the modern 21st century Democratic Party? It kind of goes back to what Paddy already mentioned all the way back with McGovern, what we've discussed in terms of Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition. Um, in the modern Democratic Party, demographics are destiny. Um, and that was why when you had... Bernie Sanders' challenge just never, to me, seemed plausible because he couldn't get enough of the, the African-American community to vote for him. Um, or even the Hispanic community, for that matter, or Asian-Americans. Um, because the Democratic Party is now a very multiracial coalition. It's also heavily female coalition, um, which is probably why Hillary Clinton ran Barack Obama so close in, uh, in 2008. So yeah, I'd say demographics are destiny in the modern Democratic Party is the main lesson from that. Yes. I think it's important to understand that... Important to understand that... Um, well, that's a pretty fine point. White men are not the base of the Democratic Party. Uh, so they are not the most important voters in the modern Democratic Party. Uh, I think one of the interesting things about the uh, Obama coalition, actually, this is something that was advanced by uh, the political scientists Thomas Schaller and Philip Klinker. They've called it not the Obama coalition. They think it, it in some ways, you, should, you can call it the Great Society Coalition, that it is, in fact, the product of legislation that was passed in the 1960s, in particular, um, the Civil and Voting Rights Acts of 1964 and 65, which uh, enfranchised African-Americans, the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, which could have removed quotas for immigration and just over the course of the past decades, massively changed the demographics of the United States and of the Democratic Party. And um, the Higher Education Act of 1965, which just increases the number of people who are going to college and getting higher education of some kind. Um, and that is sort of um, what Obama's coalition looks like. It's, um, it's multiracial, it's more educated, um, and those are the kind of the two pillars of it. So, so we ended the, the last podcast looking at the Republicans by considering, you know, how did we get to Donald Trump? 
So we should probably end this by asking, well, how did we get to Hillary Clinton? How did we get to, to this stage where we have potentially America's first woman president? I mean, I would say one... This is quite interesting, actually, you just brought up the analysis that called that the Great Society Coalition, because to me, Hillary Clinton is a Johnsonian Great Society-esque liberal um, who is comfortable using government and also who appreciates the modern makeup of the Democratic Party. I mean, one of the things she's always been very big on is feminism. I mean, she famously gave that speech where she said, you know, women's rights are civil rights. Oh, sorry, is it women's rights are human rights, sorry. Um, and... You know, she's always been, as, as you saw, there's a lot of loyalty in the African-American community to her um, and with other races. And I think she also embodies this sort of technocratic, democratic thing where they, they're very much the analytics-driven, like sort of pragmatic party in, in American politics. Of course, there are ideologues in the Democratic Party, I would say. They hold much less power than the pragmatic sorts. Um, as the, as sort of the opposite case in the Republican Party, Paddy, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, I think I I'm inclined to agree with all of that. Um, I, I think one of the striking things about um, examining Hillary Clinton's campaign is just comparing it to um, Bill Clinton's uh, in 1992, and doing that, you see just how significantly the Democratic coalition has shifted. Now, I think um, Hillary Clinton has always been the most liberal of the two of them. Uh, if you go back through her to her particular role in the Clinton administration, uh, I think that's that's a fair characterization. But there was a fascinating article in in, uh, in Slate magazine, I think, which um, picked apart Hillary Clinton's announcement video way back in 2015 and looked at uh, the people who were featured in the sort of the iconography of Hillary Clinton's campaign. And of course, what they noticed is that it's it's more um, it, it, it's more sort of multiracial, but it's also the people who Democrats would never have put in uh, videos. So there is someone who is very clearly coded to be a single mother. Um, there are um, there are instances, you know, and what is more striking is that um, uh, some of the things that are missed out. So there are no police officers off uh, or, or a servicemen in that video. Um, so the um, the there are certain iconography that have kind of fallen out of the modern democratic party. Um, yes, I think that's where I'd leave it. Well, I think we'll probably need to come back together at some point. We'd need to have you back on again, Paddy, to discuss the election when yeah. it eventually comes yeah. round towards the end of the year. But thank you very much, Paddy, for giving us your expertise and analysis for our podcasts on, on the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. It's been fantastic having you on. Yeah, absolute pleasure. I, I think our American listeners now, they've been tuning in all this time expecting a proper British accent, you know, that the Americans swoon for and they've finally got it in yourself. Paddy, you uh, look you look decidedly do you mean awkward. I sound southern? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I was I was about to say a good northern accent. <laughs> no. Okay. Th- thank you so much thank for being with us for both of these episodes of Malcolm. It's a pleasure as always. Yes, thank you very much, Mark. And to you listeners, we hope you enjoy well it'll be the Democratic Convention at this time.